0: What is up, everybody? This is Matt from Geeks Crossing, and welcome to another volume of Renaissance Matt. Today's an episode for all my history geeks out there, so pull up a chair as I take you back in time, 100 years to the Roaring Twenties, where we will come face-to-face with an extraordinarily influential and popular American politician, one whose name has largely been lost to the sands of time, but held an extremely important... ...in an age where we are really coming to understand and... Pay closer attention to our history's more underrated characters, such as the breakout success of the Broadway musical Hamilton with Alexander Hamilton, arguably the least memorable founding father before then. Now, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a household that hasn't heard of him. But I think it would be interesting to look at another man who had a very fascinating life, uh, who you've probably never heard of. He was a man of many presidential firsts, including the first Catholic to ever be nominated by a major party for president. And he was the very politician who boosted up the career of one of our most iconic presidents, Franklin D. Roosevelt, with whom he had a love-hate relationship. New Yorkers especially, listen up, because I think this history will be particularly interesting to you. Who the heck was New York Governor Al Smith? Keep in mind, no podcast episode can do justice to the entire life story of any person, but I'll do my best to help you get associated with the likes of Al Smith, and seeing as it's an election year, it could prove fruitful and interesting to look back at one of America's presidential candidates, an important historical figure who, chances are, you probably know next to nothing about. To start off, we have to travel back to December 30th, 1873, the day Alfred Emanuel Smith was born in the Lower East Side of Manhattan where he would spend most of his life. Both of his parents were the children of immigrants from Ireland, Germany, and Italy, but Smith would come to identify most with his Irish roots and become a speaker for Irish Americans at the height of his political power. He grew up while the Brooklyn Bridge was being constructed. Right near his house, he could see it, actually, and he liked to say that he grew up with the Brooklyn Bridge. His family business struggled to get by. Al's father owned a small trucking business, But Al was still able to attend elementary school and eventually worked as an altar boy. The Catholic priests he grew up around greatly influenced his early life and his values. Tragedy struck the Smith household when his father died and Al was forced to drop out of school and work at a fish market for the rest of his teenage years to support his family. He would never attend high school or higher education. In the 1890s, Al found amateur success as an actor before finding his calling in New York politics. Back in the day, New York politics were run by the Tammany Hall political machine. There's not really anything quite like a political machine in American politics today, but basically, a political machine was an entity that sought to expand its influence by almost any means necessary. In New York's case, Tammany Hall was well known to be a part of the Democratic Party, and beginning in the late 19th century, it commonly used its power to boost Irish-American immigrants, funding their journeys to power. Your history teacher may have taught you about Boss Tweed in the 1860s and 1870s, Well, that was Tammany Hall. As any politically-minded Irish-American New Yorker would have done at the time, Al Smith got involved with Tammany Hall, though he boasted a near spotless record when it came to corruption, and it's largely understood by historians that while Smith used Tammany Hall, Tammany Hall never used Smith. The late 1890s and early 1900s saw a turn in the fortunes of Smith. In 1895, he got a small government job as an investigator appointed by Tammany Hall. The political machine became very impressed with his public speaking ability, and continued to employ him through various odd jobs into the 20th century. Around this time, Smith found success in his personal life as well. In 1900, right at the turn of the century, Smith married Catherine Cady Dunn, with whom he would have five children. Friendliness to the machine truly paid off for Smith, especially at the outset of the 20th century. Kameny Hall had just ousted its previous leader on allegations of corruption, and in 1902, Charles Silent Charlie Murphy took power. Murphy sought to move Tammany Hall away from the elitist corruption made infamous by Boss Tweed, and more towards the progressive movement, which was beginning in full with the work of the Muckrakers and the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt, even though he was a Republican, and Murphy and Tammany Hall were Democratic. Theodore Roosevelt's presidency started in 1901, following William McKinley's assassination. But Silent Charlie Murphy took a liking to Al Smith, and Tammany Hall solidly backed him. In 1904, Smith was elected New York State Assemblyman, a position he would hold until 1915. Smith remained a solid Tammany politician during a time period in which Tammany Hall's influence was challenged by a young upstart elected in part due to his last name, State Senator Franklin D. Roosevelt. After a highly publicized incident in 1911 in which Roosevelt led a group of upstarts in obstructing a series of Tammany Hall nominees, excuse me, Roosevelt was soon out of New York politics After a highly publicized incident in 1911, in which Roosevelt and a group of insurgents obstructed a series of Tammany Hall nominees for various positions, Roosevelt was soon out of New York politics altogether, swept away to serve as Woodrow Wilson's assistant secretary to the Navy. Al Smith regarded FDR with suspicion and curiosity. Frances Perkins, a labor activist who would eventually serve as the first-ever female cabinet official, secretary of labor from 1933 to 1945, approached Al Smith on the issue of improving factory conditions. This became incredibly irrelevant after the 1913 Triangle Shirtwaist Fire Factory. Garment workers, mostly girls as young as 14, were trapped in their building when a fire broke out. Ultimately, 146 workers died in what is to date the worst industrial disaster in New York City history and one of the worst in American history. Smith oversaw a New York State commission to determine what went wrong interviewing witnesses and assembling testimonies, even sending inspectors on surprise visits to similar factories. The investigation introduced Smith to Bell Moskowitz, a political agent and activist, who would become a staple of Smith's political team. The State Commission's findings led to drastically modernized labor laws in New York, heralded as some of the strongest and safest in the United States at the time. They advocated for fire extinguishers, automatic sprinkler system, and better eating and restroom areas in every building as well as shorter work weeks for women and children. 60 of the 64 proposals made by Smith's commission were signed into law by the governor. Smith's career took off from there. He was elected sheriff of New York County in 1916 with the help of Moskowitz's campaign manager, a position unheard of for women at the time. And soon after, in 1918, Smith was elected governor of New York. Thanks to his own political acumen and the friends he'd made up to that point, particularly important, were... James Farley, a prominent Irish-American Catholic politician who helped Smith win upstate New York, and, of course, Moskowitz, who once again served as his campaign manager. In his first year as governor in 1919, Smith made a very powerful enemy in William Randolph Hearst. Hearst was a true New York giant, even a national celebrity. He was a newspaper magnate whose company, Hearst Communications, was the largest newspaper syndicate in the country— and was an intensely interesting man. He was actually the inspiration for Charles Kane in the film Citizen Kane. Hearst was wealthy, flamboyant, and controversial, having been responsible for spreading the media practice of yellow journalism at the turn of the century, and he had attacked Smith on the charge of a decision he made against lowering the price of milk. Smith, in return, gave a passionate speech in which he referred to William Randolph Hearst as, quote, a man as low and mean as I can picture, unquote harming the relationship between the new governor and one of the most powerful private citizens in the city. Smith had only just begun his tenure as governor, but he had higher aspirations. He wanted to be president, and every contest from 1920 to 1932 would see him take a shot at achieving the ultimate American ambition. Al Smith wanted to be the Democrat's choice in the election of 1920, after Woodrow Wilson announced he would not controversially seek a third term, especially after suffering a severe stroke. Primaries worked very differently in 1920 than how they do today. Today, a candidate for a major party's nomination has to win enough delegates in primary elections to be nominated by the party. In 1924, though, there were still delegates, but no primary election decided which candidates got them. The delegates decided themselves who to support. And these big groups of delegates, like the California delegation and the New York delegation, they were controlled by bosses and machines. And simply put, Tammany Hall did not have the power nationwide that it did in New York. In an effort to rally delegates to support his nomination, Al Smith had an associate speak on his behalf at the convention. This associate was a familiar 38-year-old who Smith knew was a former state senator from New York, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Roosevelt gave a passionate speech for Smith, but the plan backfired. He had done such a good job that the party bosses were paying more attention to Roosevelt himself than who he was endorsing And when the party chose Ohio governor and media mogul James Cox as its candidate of choice, the youthful Roosevelt, who had also served as assistant Navy secretary, was selected as his running mate. The ticket ended up failing miserably in November. The country accepted the Republican ticket of Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge and their return to normalcy by a huge margin of victory. Cox retired from politics and focused on his media empire, Cox Enterprises and Franklin Roosevelt went on to practice law and prepare for a political comeback. Here's a fun fact for you that I found while researching this episode. James Cox's great-grandson, James Cox Kennedy, is the richest person in Georgia, the 37th richest American, and the 105th richest person in the world. So, the more you know. The early 1920s proved to be a very important time for Al Smith. Though he lost re-election to be New York's governor in 1920, he was re-elected again in 1922. Back in the day, gubernatorial elections in New York were done every two years instead of every six years, as they are now. Starting in 1922, Smith became a true force to be reckoned with in the Democratic Party. He solidified his reputation as unabashedly against prohibition, famously offering alcohol to the guests at the governor's mansion, despite the constitutional amendment. Smith's assistant, the young Robert Moses, created New York's national parks, including Jones Beach, Robert Moses Beach, and the state highway system, Robert Moses would hold his position in the New York Council of Parks until 1963 and briefly served as New York's Secretary of State under Smith. Together with his old friend, Francis Perkins, Smith also helped the working class of New York. Though he had sympathies for the working class, Smith was not always kind to his enemies. In 1922, Tammany Hall backed the media mogul William Randolph Hearst for the Democratic nomination for a U.S. Senate seat. In a rare move, Smith went against the wishes of Tammany Hall and Charlie Murphy and vetoed the nomination. Hurst, who had not been fond of Smith since the low and mean comments of 1919, and who had craved political power since the turn of the century, never forgave Smith for this. By the time the 1924 presidential election rolled around, Democrats had been out of presidential power for most of the post-Civil War American history, outside of Grover Cleveland and, more recently, Woodrow Wilson. If that doesn't seem like a long time to you, a baby born in early uh, early 1857, when James Buchanan took office as the last Democratic president before the Civil War, uh, that baby would have turned 67 in early 1924. The Democrats had had their taste of presidential power again with the iconic presidency of Woodrow Wilson, and now, four years after Wilson left office, they wanted it back. The 1924 convention pitted the two opposing sides of a hopelessly split Democratic Party against each other. The progressives and the conservatives. The progressives in the Democratic Party wanted a strong government. They stood up for labor rights. They were in favor of the new prohibition and its ban on alcohol. They supported internationalism and military alliances with Europe, as proposed by the League of Nations and Woodrow Wilson's 14 points after World War I, only a few short years ago. They were largely concentrated in rural America and especially the South idolizing Woodrow Wilson, who had lived much of his life in Georgia before moving to New Jersey, becoming president of Princeton, governor of New Jersey, and then president of the United States. These progressive Democrats also largely sympathized with Wilson's support for racial segregation. In the contest to decide which wing of the party would wing out at the convention, the progressives pushed William Gibbs McAdoo, Woodrow Wilson's treasury secretary, and son-in-law, most famous for overseeing the creation of the Federal Reserve. The other wing of the Democratic Party was the conservative wing. This group of Democrats was sympathetic to business, they were against prohibition, and they were extremely wary of the League of Nations and military alliances of any kind. These Democrats were largely concentrated in big cities, and also contained a variety of ethnic minorities and immigrants. Al Smith became their voice and their horse in the race. James Farley, Smith's old political ally, backed Smith at the convention, as did another old acquaintance, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Franklin D. Roosevelt was a different man in 1924 than he had been as a young, upstart state senator in 1911, or even as vice presidential nominee in 1920. Following a family vacation in 1921, FDR had fallen ill. Doctors at the time diagnosed him with polio. Though he could still move in short bursts and stand when he had something to lean on, Roosevelt would mostly be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Despite his progressive leanings and despite his new paralytic condition, Roosevelt enthusiastically supported his old friend Al Smith with another passionate convention speech, during which he christened Smith with the moniker he would keep for the rest of his life, the Happy Warrior. As the white supremacist hate group, the Ku Klux Klan, entered a period of resurgence into the national conversation, now focusing their efforts at the influx of new Catholic immigrants, They enthusiastically backed McAdoo, a Southerner in the style of Wilson, and just as powerfully railed against Smith for his Catholicism. The 1924 Democratic Convention was a tense, ugly affair, perhaps the ugliest convention in American history outside of the 1968 Democratic Convention. The 1924 convention lasted 16 days, the longest in American history. As many as 300 delegates were card-carrying members of the KKK— and fistfights broke out on the convention floor. After a grueling hundred ballots, during which neither McAdoo nor Smith could get the numbers they needed from the delegation, they both accepted that neither would be able to be their party's nominee, and the party rallied behind a compromise candidate. They found that candidate in John W. Davis. Davis had been a dark horse candidate for the nomination, meaning that his name was floated as a possibility, but nobody ever really thought it was likely. He had been a U.S. representative from West Virginia the Solicitor General and, briefly, Ambassador to the UK under Woodrow Wilson. To date, he was the only major party candidate for president from West Virginia. Fun fact for you there. In many ways, Davis was the definitive compromise candidate. He was a segregationalist, but he disavowed the KKK. He did not take a stance on prohibition. By trying to straddle the middle, progressives and conservatives were not particularly happy with him, and Davis also running against the prosperity of Calvin Coolidge's administration, lost in a landslide. The Democratic Party would have at least four more years out of power. Having dipped his toes in the water in 1920 and risen to considerable political power at the Convention of 1924, Smith's chances were on the up-and-up for 1928 for him to finally be his party's nominee. Franklin Roosevelt, a Protestant and a progressive extremely popular among Southern Protestants, helped shore up support for Smith among non-Catholics, putting him over the edge in his popularity within the party. By the time the 1928 convention rolled around, it seemed there would be no ifs and or buts about it. Al Smith would finally be his party's nominee. William McAdoo removed himself from the party's consideration because he thought Smith couldn't be bested for the nomination. Despite the best wishes of the KKK and the progressives and internationalists in the party who hastily pushed for the nomination of montana senator thomas walsh a fellow catholic but one who supported prohibition smith emerged from the convention victorious joseph t robinson who had served in the u.s House of representatives the governor's mansion and the u.s senate representing arkansas was selected as smith's running mate to try and bring geographical diversity to the ticket smith's 1928 nomination would set two massive precedents for one by keeping bell moskowitz around to run his campaign Smith Robinson, 1928, would employ the first female campaign manager for a major party ticket in American history. The New York Times would call Moskowitz the most powerful woman in American politics upon her death five years later. The other extremely important precedent was Smith's faith. For the entirety of American history up until 1928, all of the men selected by either of the two major political parties had been some variation of Protestant. Al Smith would be the first to upend this tradition. Neither major party would select a Catholic again until 1960 with the Democratic Party selection of John F. Kennedy. Smith's opponent would be Herbert Hoover, Calvin Coolidge's Secretary of Commerce, well known for his humanitarian work domestically and during the First World War. Smith ran a decent race against Hoover, but ultimately it wasn't enough. The country was in terrific economic shape, and voters credited that to Harding, Coolidge, and the Republican Party. Smith won the so-called Solid South, Arkansas, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and South Carolina, a region that had voted solidly for any Democratic candidate since 1877 out of bitterness towards the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln's Union Army and Ulysses S. Grant's Reconstruction. Though voters in the South didn't particularly like Al Smith, many would have voted for a shoe to be president before they voted for a Republican. Other than that, the only electoral votes Smith received were from Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Herbert Hoover won every other state, including some that dipped into the solid South, and including Smith's home state of New York. Smith was successful in closing the gap in many cities around the country, however. Urban centers had traditionally been Republican strongholds, but in the 1928 elections, many cities voted for Hoover by small margins or actually backed Smith. Though Al Smith succeeded in many ways, he also failed, especially in attracting the Democratic Party's usual base of rural Protestant voters, Uh, It's true that many of them disliked him for his Catholic faith and Irish immigrant roots, though not all rural voters who disliked Smith were bigoted. Of course, bigotry undeniably played a role in his defeat. Uh, However, there were other reasons why rural voters were slow to get behind Smith. For many rural voters, hearing Smith's New Yorker tone and voice on the radio, it sounded like he was from a totally different world. Prohibition was particularly popular among rural voters in the South, and the Smith campaign tune literally titled Sidewalks of New York and containing such lines as East Side, West Side, All Around the Town, while describing life in the city, alienated a lot of rural small-town voters who likely had no idea what the heck these people were singing about. Defeated in his ultimate goal, Smith went back to New York to lick his wounds. Smith had not run for re-election as governor of New York in 1928 and had openly campaigned for his hand-picked replacement, Franklin D. Roosevelt out of graciousness for the help he'd given him. Roosevelt had barely won in 1928 when Herbert Hoover swept New York, but now he was the governor, and he helped Smith receive the coveted new position as president of Empire State Incorporated. In this lucrative job, Smith oversaw construction of the Empire State Building, a beautiful new skyscraper and the world's tallest building until 1970, a true symbol of American innovation. This gesture of goodwill was only surface level. Roosevelt's two terms as New York governor signified the end of the friendship between himself and Al Smith. Roosevelt, a devoutly progressive Democrat, arguably more in the style of Woodrow Wilson than Al Smith, took actions that Smith argued were too far-reaching than the government ought to get. Tensions flared between the two. During one interview with the press at the Empire State Building, when a reporter had a question for Mr. Governor, Smith cut in. Which one? After the Wall Street stock market collapse in 1929, Roosevelt set himself apart from other American governors by insisting the government had a role to play in turning the economy back around. Smith disagreed sharply with this mindset, believing the established conservative principles that a government should not interfere with the economy. By the time the 1932 election rolled around, President Hoover's numbers were declining as a result of the Great Depression, and the Democrats saw a promising opportunity. If they chose a strong candidate, they could have their third Democrat in the White House since before Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. I cannot stress how long it had been for them. The 1932 convention was largely defined as a battle between FDR and Al Smith, though a third very important player, John Nance Garner, a U.S. representative from Texas who was serving as Speaker of the House at the time, was also in consideration for the top job. With both Roosevelt and Smith based in New York, Smith watched many of his past allies join his rival's campaign, including Francis Perkins and James Farley, who became Roosevelt's campaign manager and would go on to an extensive political and business career. Tammany Hall, and other big city executives such as the one in Chicago, would remain enthusiastically supportive of Al Smith, though this would be a blessing and a curse, such as when New York City Mayor Jimmy Walker, who was making headlines for his scandal-ridden administration, happily endorsed Smith because Governor Roosevelt was investigating him for corruption. Roosevelt's charisma and governing style, which sought to use government to help those who felt left behind, created a seemingly contradictory alliance between all kinds of Americans, ethnic minorities, Southern Protestants, Wilsonian internationalists, city-dwelling factory workers, and Western farmers alike. This would eventually become the New Deal Coalition, a bloc that would keep voting for the Democratic candidate until 1968 and would largely keep voting for a candidate in the Democratic primary election long after, arguably to this day. Smith had one last ace up his sleeve. If he could convince the delegates of California and Texas to support his nomination, he could deny Roosevelt the delegate count he needed. Texas and California's delegates were heavily intertwined at the 1932 convention, due to the friendships of those in charge. So Smith knew all roads led through House Speaker John Nance Garner. Unfortunately for Smith, he could not have had worse negotiating partners. The California delegation was largely led by two men, William Randolph Hearst and William McAdoo, two of Smith's most bitter enemies brought together by chance. Hearst had moved to California for business incentives, while McAdoo had been there since 1922 and was now running for Senate. Hearst and McAdoo initially did not want Roosevelt to be president, or even the nominee. They thought he was too radical so they agreed to put aside their rivalry with Smith to try and stop FDR from clinching the party's nomination. However, Hurst and McAdoo only did so with the idea that the three of them would locate a replacement candidate. Al Smith, on the other hand, wanted to be that replacement candidate, and Hearst and McAdoo would be damned if their loathed enemy Smith received a single delegate from California. Though John Nance Garner was conservative, and would come to fight against much of FDR's New Deal, he too had a distaste for Al Smith and when Bell Moskowitz called his aide to arrange a conversation, Garner had the aide tell her point-blank that he refused to talk to Al Smith. The convention went to Roosevelt, who chose John Nance Garner as his running mate. It was over for Al Smith. Crestfallen, Smith returned to New York. He would eventually campaign for the Roosevelt-Garner ticket, deeply unhappy with Herbert Hoover's administration, and, as a loyal Democrat, sensing an opportunity, to elect one of his own to the White House. But Al Smith would never serve elected office again. His old guard way of governing seemed to be on the decline. Silent Charlie Murphy had been dead for almost a decade when Smith suffered defeat in 1932. And no powerful politicians had emerged to take his place in the years following. Tammany Hall was in shambles. After an incredibly brief power struggle in New York City following the corrupt Mayor Jimmy Walker, a larger-than-life figure emerged in the liberal progressive Republican Fiorello LaGuardia, who would serve as mayor from 1934 to 1945 and who battled passionately against Tammany Hall. When his consistent campaign manager and trusted friend Bel Moskowitz died in a tragic accident at the age of 55, two months before FDR was inaugurated, it seems to be symbolic of the end of Al Smith's life in politics. However, that did not mean Smith would go quietly. As FDR's New Deal reforms kicked off, Smith would become a vocal critic of the administration, decrying these reforms as an attack on personal liberty. Smith's conservative principles, particularly those of individual and liberty, enticed him to believe that a large federal government could trample over personal freedoms if given the opportunity. Smith, along with John W. Davis, the Democratic Party candidate in 1924, joined the American Liberty League in 1934 a group organized by former politicians and businessmen to oppose FDR's administration and the reforms it viewed as against liberty. The organization fizzled out quickly, but it represented Smith's animosity towards the New Deal. Smith backed Republican Alf Landon in 1936. Smith became a loud critic of Adolf Hitler and Nazism in Germany. Throughout the 1930s, and especially when addressing an anti-Nazi convention at Madison Square Garden in 1934, and making an anti-Nazi speech on the radio in 1938, directly after Kristallnacht, the night in which Nazi thugs destroyed the windows of thousands of Jewish-owned shops, beat 91 German Jews to death, and left hundreds of others to commit suicide, Smith made himself clear he was against This disgusting fascist regime. Smith actually remained friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady. In one awkward instance, when Smith traveled to Washington, D.C. for a speech denouncing the Roosevelt administration, Eleanor offered him a room at the White House to stay in while he was in town. Smith declined, citing the awkwardness. He also remained friends with his old assistant and secretary of state, Robert Moses. Moses, remembering his boss's love for animals, named Smith an honorary zookeeper at the Central Park Zoo and gifted him a key, one Smith would frequently use to show guests around after hours. Smith was also honored in 1939 by the Pope, who appointed him a papal chamberlain of the sword and cape. This was the highest honor a Catholic layman could receive from the papacy, and it had justly gone to the man who did more to advance the Catholic cause than any politician in his day in the United States. During the 1940 election, inter-party hatred of FDR had reached an all-time high, Many Democrats did not want FDR to run for a third term for a variety of reasons. No president had ever done so and won. It appeared a bit fascistic for an administration to refuse to abide by the two-term tradition. And FDR was becoming notably physically tired and aged from the tireless work. This election season saw Roosevelt break ties with John Nance Garner and James Farley, both of whom sought their party's nomination. But FDR was nominated again. Conversely, though, as many Democrats began souring on the president, 1940 saw a turning point in Smith's relationship with Roosevelt. He was attacking him less and less. Though he endorsed Republican Wendell Wilkie in the election, Smith had spoken supportively of FDR's proposal to allow arms sales to the British while remaining neutral. After FDR won re-election to a third term, Smith began the process of normalizing relations with him. He happily supported Roosevelt's plan to involve the United States in World War II. Smith and FDR met in June 1941 to discuss the war effort, and it was during this meeting that relations between the two lifelong New Yorkers finally normalized. Though they remained a bit tense after a decade of bitterness, Smith remained a strong supporter of Roosevelt's war effort into the 1940s, and on May 4th, 1944, Smith's wife, Katie, who he had married in 1900, passed away after a battle with cancer. This loss of Smith's wife of nearly half a century absolutely devastated him. FDR sent Smith a personal note expressing his condolences, which Smith greatly appreciated. Sadly, perhaps unable in some way to go on without his beloved wife, Alfred Emanuel Smith died of a heart attack on October 4th, 1944, five months to the date that he lost his wife. The happy warrior was 70 years old. A little over a month later, FDR would win his fourth term as president, though he would only live to serve a few months of it. Al Smith was truly the American dream personified. Al Smith was truly the American dream personified. Born to a poor family of second generation immigrants, his father dead when he was only 13 years old. Smith did not have the luxury of a college education and didn't even get a single day of high school. Yet upon his death, Smith had been an assemblyman, an activist, a sheriff, a governor, a presidential candidate, and yes, technically even a zookeeper. A young boy from Brooklyn had ended his life honored by the President of the United States and the Pope. And Al Smith's memory indeed lives on today. He's honored by the Alfred E. Smith Building in Albany, the New York capital, where Smith did much of his work as governor, as well as a slew of buildings, parks, schools, and even residence halls at Binghamton University and Farmingdale State College. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people went there and just saw Smith Hall and figured that could be anyone. That wasn't just any Smith, that was Al Smith. The Alfred E. Smith Memorial Foundation Dinner, or the Al Smith Dinner, is a dinner held each October in New York City to raise money for Catholic charities and to honor a public figure with the Happy Warrior Award. It has become well known as a spot for presidential candidates to stop by, as it is usually televised, and its placement on the calendar puts it a few weeks before the presidential election every four years. It's also a good opportunity for candidates to try to win over Catholic voters. But this has become a bit strained in recent decades due to the troubled relationship between the Catholic Church and the Democratic Party's position on social issues. But by and large, it is still a traditional campaign stop, and that is set to include 2020, though only around 50 guests will be permitted at the gala, as opposed to the usual 1,500. Alfred E. Smith V, Al Smith's great-great-grandson, retains a role in his family's Catholic charity – keeping his ancestor's name alive in honor of this legendary figure and in the face of so much misfortune and pain in the world today, maybe it's just a New Yorker in me, but I'd like to imagine we're all called upon to be happy warriors. A bit of a cheesy conclusion to be sure, but I do appreciate you if you're still around. Geeks for video games and geeks for cartoons are probably a bit more common than geeks for obscure politicians from early 20th century American history. But I do hope I was able to entertain you, or at least inform you, and I hope you've learned something new about somebody you may have never heard of. And for my fellow New Yorkers, I'm really hoping I got some recognition out of you from some of the names and locations I've described along the way. Sadly, I wasn't able to get my hands on any books in preparation for this episode, but... Christopher Finan's book on Al Smith apparently delves deeper into the governor's personal life, while Robert Slayton's book describes in greater detail the relationship between Al Smith and FDR in the 1930s and 40s. Special thanks to all the research they've done, research I was able to utilize for this silly little episode of a podcast. If you want to listen to more content about video games, movies, cartoons, pop culture, history, and all sorts of other fun stuff, please add us to your feed and join our Discord. This has been a Geeks Crossing podcast, and I will see you on the sidewalks of New York.